Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Andy N. I'm Andy. I'm a compulsive overeater. And extremely nervous, and I'm normally not nervous, so let me just be with my nervousness for a little bit. Um, thank you, Rod, for asking me. It's quite an honor. Uh, I never thought this day was going to come. Um, I was in relapse for about 20 years. Um, my disease is, well, it's multifold, but I expressed it as it relates to food in two main ways, compulsive overeating and outrageously ridiculous exercise bulimia. And I've never put a little photo thing together, but I, on suggestion, I actually found the most exercise bulimic-y picture I could find of me, and me at my absolute highest weight. So um, I'm going to pass those around. Um, Let me just say that in my family, um, we, we were raised, we had no religion. Both my parents were Jewish, but the religion that we practiced was uh, liberal activism, and my parents were both um, uh, therapists slash teachers slash, you know, groovy people. Um, very hard to rebel in my family. You'd have to join the Birch Society, or you'd have to you'd have to go in some weird direction. We would take drugs with our parents. Um, all the neighborhood kids were at our house, um, so it, it was very difficult. Uh, my my parents were always my best friends. Um, and it's a confusing way to be because I never had a sense of my own. Um, there was no boundaries in my family. I mean no boundaries. Um, a lot of nude beaches with family. Um, a lot of really kind of what I look back on now, very sick stuff. But back in the 60s and 70s, we were cutting edge experimental. And I was always told how lucky I should feel for being raised in the way I was. And I could never, I could never square why I felt so ashamed of myself and yet at the same time was supposed to feel like how lucky I should be. And so what I learned to do was turn to myself. Now, I also should say that I was at age 5, 6, and 7. They actually thought I was retarded. That's what was written in my school record. I I actually just had very severe learning disabilities, but back then they didn't know what it was. And so I learned very early on um, to work really, really hard. Um, I was able to, you know, with lots of specialists or whatever, I was able to overcome a lot of these learning disabilities. I also, wa- uh, this is also where I learned to overeat and also compulsively exercise because I found um, that part of the therapy was a lot of exercise, a lot of movement, get the brain kind of talking to each other. And I found that it was actually a drug that I actually loved the feeling of the endorphin high. And, you know, endorphin high is terrific if you're an athlete, but when you're seven, it's, <laughs> it's weird. Um, and so I would always do things, little things, like, you know, we would go shopping and I would want to be dropped off at the corner so I could walk into the store, you know, from a far distance. And I was doing those kind of things. I also found that the only thing that really comforted me was eating. And I learned to eat. And as I got older... 
the eating and the exercise just progressed to gargantuan levels. Um, I always, my first job, I should say that we were raised um, with tofu and fish in the 60s, which never, you never saw that. So I, I couldn't wait till I could have my first piece of Wonder Bread. And, um, and when I was probably about 11 or 12, I heard somewhere that those who worked at Baskin Robbins get to eat ice cream for free. So guess what my first job was? <laughs> and guess where I developed my first sugar addiction? Um, so I was eating just tremendous amounts of food. I was exercising it off. I was feeling like a fraud. I was always very popular because I was, as my therapist puts it now, I was a pathological accommodator. So I was everybody's friend. Um, and I had these two little secrets. And this worked off and on most of my life, even into OA, because I came in at a very young age. Um, the pictures going around, my first meeting was actually 1983. I was 21. There were very few men in 1983. There were very few young men, and there were absolutely no exercise bulimics. Um, so I always questioned whether or not I belonged. I really fought with the steps. I will say, and if you're new, Tradition 3 is what absolutely saved me. The only requirement for membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. That really got me. And I felt like no matter what, if they've got that on the wall, they can't kick me out. Although... By any other measure, they should kick me out because I don't look like anybody here and I don't have the experience of anybody here. And so my membership was always sort of, I was one foot in, one foot out. Um, my first sponsor, uh, I went through the steps and I got to step five. It took uh, nine months to do my fourth step. He had given me one of these touchy-feely you know, incredible war and peace version of step four. And um, nine months later, when I went to read it to him, he basically said, well, this doesn't sound like you. And I said, well, it was nine months ago. Obviously, I've had some changes. And he said, you know what, do it again. And um, that ended my official relationship with the steps. Um, and I got another sponsor. But, you know, the truth was, I was, um, I was such a hardcore bulimic uh, with exercise, that I sort of felt like the rules didn't apply to me. And I could mouth the, you know, the, the things I would hear, but I never had the grace that I saw you folks have. And when you would talk about a slip or a binge or whatever, I would think silent to me, silently to myself, that's not even an appetizer for me. You know, I am not safe to reveal what I'm doing. Um, and this went on for a long time. About six or seven years into my abstinence, and my, I should say my abstinence was no sugar, not, you know, no sugar, but absolutely no other restrictions. Eat whenever I want, as much as I want, um, but no sugar. Um, about six or seven years into my abstinence, my back went out, and it went out hard, and I was in pain constantly for about two years. Ironically, it went out at an OA men's retreat. Um, and that was the first time where I really had the first sense of powerlessness. Like, I am no longer in control of my body. I am no longer... It was, it was a real wake-up call. And I have to say, in, the, in about two years, I, went, I gained about 120 pounds. I just went straight up. This is the first time I actually felt like, now I can go to an OA meeting and go, see, I am one of you. Um, but the truth is, nobody cares. I mean, nobody's living inside my head. I'm just inside my head. Um, I also 
began to do everything, all the little tricks of the trade that people would talk about when they came in. I've tried this, I've tried that, and I'm done. Well, I was taking notes on all these things. Now I'm grossly overweight, and I'm going to go try all those things. Because, you know, the God thing, I, I sincerely believe that God worked and that there was a God. I just felt permanently defective, and that's just how it was going to be. So I was trying all these other things while in OA. Um, I was very compliant. I was not very surrendered. I absolutely understood the idea of faith without works is dead. I understood the works part. But works without faith was exactly what I was doing. I didn't have a sense of faith. My faith came from my ability to marshal whatever my resources were. And I had done it successfully, I thought, in a way for so many years. Why is this failing me now? And thus began a, I would say, a 20-year journey of um, constant relapse. And so I want to kind of focus... I was going to say, oh my God. Um, I'm going to, I am not going to, um, to uh, 620, so let me just say that. But for, um, for the next 20 years, I tried everything I could, um, short of facing, kind of having the ultimate surrender. Um, but a couple of things happened along the way that were extremely important. Um, first thing that happened when I lost my abstinence and I started gaining weight rapidly, I had always believed, because I used to hear this in OA, if you ever lose your abstinence, fire and brimstone that minute. And I believed that, and that actually kept me abstinent, at least that kept me from sugar. Um, What I found was, as I was descending into my rapid weight gain, conversely, or in juxtaposition to my food, was all this outside success. I met a girl, I got a good job, I got master's degrees, I, you know, good things were happening on the outside of my body. So it was confusing to me. And thus, more stuff in my head about, you know, this, this God thing and the surrender thing, it doesn't really compute with me because why is this happening? This doesn't make sense to me. And so the meaning in my life became, well, I can't control my life, but I certainly can control my work behavior. And so I just became success, successful at work. Until about five years ago, I did not get a promotion that I had been waiting almost ten years to get. And that was the first time I went through something which I think is a precursor to my ultimate surrender, my ultimate sense of powerlessness. And I would say it was an ultimate sense of meaninglessness. I had put all this meaning at different points of my life. Different things had different meaning. But I always had like an ultimate thing that had the ultimate meaning. For a long time it was... Uh, I wanted to be at peace with food. Well, I sort of was. I wanted to look normal. Well, I sort of did. But then I wanted to meet a girl. I did. Um, I always had this thing that I had to get to. Well, this is the first time where I was in a free fall. I had no sense of meaning. And in that moment actually came the first kind of glimmer of God working through me. Go with this. The best way out is through. Yes, Life is meaningless. Absolutely. Guess what? You can choose to create meaning somewhere else. It didn't take me that long to go from, my life is meaningless. My wife chose not to have kids. I always wanted to be a father. I'm never going to get a promotion in my job. Um, Yada, yada, yada. And it shifted to, hey, you're 300 plus pounds. You feel absolutely ashamed of yourself. 
you've never just taken the time to just take care of yourself. You've always been on some career trajectory or something, 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 and you always took a back seat. Now, yes, you did OA and you did therapy and you've done other things, but you've never put yourself front, front and center. And so I began to put myself front and center, and it began by finally committing myself to therapy. Now, I have to say that my parents were therapists. My sister is a child psychiatrist. I had never had my own therapy. I've done a lot of group stuff, and I could, you know, sound like the hip and groovy whatever, but I never worked one-on-one. I was deathly afraid of that. So I began doing that. And in that process... Uh, and, you know, and, and I would go to these sessions and I'd be like, and all I would do is talk about my food. And it's like, well, why aren't you, you know, why aren't you talking about that in a way? It's like, why? I'm so embarrassed. You know, after 20 years of constantly talking about my relapse, I'm not going to talk about my relapse anymore. So I'd go to OA meetings, but I would not say anything. Because why bother? Why, you know, I just, I had just said, I'm not doing this anymore. And so this therapist basically started to nudge me. And one of the things he proposed to me, which, you know, met with such vitriol out of my mouth, I can't tell you, is, have you ever thought about weight loss surgery? I said, over my dead body will I ever do that? Um, and I gave him all the reasons why. That it would be the either softer way, that I'd be a fraud, that it would be an act against God. I had I, literally 20 things. And I was just insulted. I mean, I almost walked out of that session. But I started thinking about it, uh, you know, Fast forward to my stepfather passing away, and in fact, in the picture there was at his at his um, his funeral. Um, about two days after my stepfather passed away, my wife says to me in tears, "You're going to leave me a widow many years before I should have to be." And that was for the first time my first spiritual experience. And let me just define what I mean by spiritual experience versus spiritual awakening. Spiritual experience, parting of the Red Sea, a shift in my consciousness like flipping a light switch. Spiritual awakening, slow, painful, glacially slow variety. (laughs) Hated that. I had my first spiritual experience. And I said, you know what? I do not care what I have to do or what I'm going to go through. And I'm going to roll the dice and scramble the jets. I am going to move forward with this weight loss thing because you know what I'm 300 and I think my top weight is 320 um, and I'm, I'm not going to do this to my wife and I am going to do it for my wife and once I made that declaration to myself and to God because I, I was actually looking up to the skies when I said that and I went oh I guess that was to God um, everything started to change the first thing that happened was I realized, oh my God, I'm going to have to work an OA program in a way I've never done before. I'm going to have to be surrendered in a way I've never been surrendered. I'm going to have to be vulnerable in a way I've never been vulnerable. I'm going to have to go through the steps, you know, not kitty style, not Andy style, but like really go through the steps. I'm going to have to do things I have never done before. I've got uh, all these years in OA, I, you know, I like the language. I'm glad it all works for you people, but it's never worked for me. It's got to have to work for me. Otherwise, I don't know what to do. And I had a level of desperation that, um, you know, it just took what it took. And that's really my ultimate message. I stuck around, I stuck around, I stuck around, and finally something happened. And so let me describe basically what happened. I had the surgery um, back in March of a year ago. And literally, 
three or four weeks afterwards, I'm at a Baskin Robbins and I'm telling my brother, I can't believe I'm at Baskin Robbins. And he says, Andy, remember you had the lap band, not the lobotomy. You know, are you going to do anything different now? And I was like, oh God, I've really got to do something different. And so I started to just do things different. I started going to different meetings. I started to um, look for sponsors. I mean, really look for sponsors. I decided I wanted to find a male sponsor. Um, I started to go to Orange County, to Long Beach, to Ventura. I started going to different meetings. I was on a quest for a sponsor. And um, I started working with this guy who, as my wife called him, he was one of the chicken Nazis of Orange County. Um, and um, he couldn't handle the fact that I had to eat differently. I had to eat all the time and I eat very little. And I was calling in my food and committing it and um, I told him, you know, when a pineapple and such and such. He goes, oh, you can't have pineapple. I said, uh, well, it's on my list of things that the hospital says I need to start eating. You know, they can't have pineapple. And I realized, I'm going to have to find a new sponsor. Well, fortunately, this sponsor I was working with had given me a bunch of names and one of the names was a person who also had had a similar operation and was working a program and had many years in program. And I feel like it took me X number of years to finally find a sponsor who I could really work with who, who understood my condition. And so I went through the steps. And not only did I go through the steps, but I, I devoured myself in AA literature, AA tapes, AA everything, AA books. Um, and I really... Um, I, I immersed myself in AA in ways that I, um, I mean, I always sort of heard it in the background, but I really got it. And so I started putting it together, and guess what? I started to get the miracle. But here's what I found about the miracle. It's extremely messy. It's extremely imperfect. I am constantly going to make mistakes. I am constantly going to find myself questioning, if, does this count as being healthy, or does this count as being, you know, like out of my freaking mind? Um, and I have come to appreciate how messy things are. And I have come to appreciate the fact that um, part of my spiritual path and my spiritual quest is that I fall off the horse a lot. Because what I've actually found is the issue is not whether you fall off the horse. It's with how much love and um, grace you get back on the horse. And to the extent that I can do that, I fall off the horse less often, I fall less intensely, um, and so I've been able to practice a level of self-love that only comes when I accept that I am imperfect, that God, and I've also learned a few things for me, for my higher power, is that I used to always try to do the take-home exam of OA, you know, like, just give me the literature, let me go figure it out myself. You know, like I'm a bear and I'm going to go to my own cave and I'm going to lick my own wounds and I'll come back to the herd once I've told them how I did it, but I don't want to interact with you while I'm injured. And I've learned that God works only through other people. That doesn't mean God's not there. It just means that for me to get the benefit of having a power greater than myself in my life, I have to involve you. And um, as much as I fought that, um, that seems to be a truism that... um, I was not powerful enough to overcome. So, um, so what what it's like today? So let me just describe what I what I started doing. Um, I had a lot of misperceived notions about spirituality, about prayer and meditation, and through uh, just being open and through my sponsor and through other forms of literature, I've come to realize 
um, that meditation for me can be as simple and as small as taking a deep breath and, and prayer can be as simple as small as saying help or thanks. It can be broken down to the smallest little note. I always thought that prayer had to look a certain way, that I had to get into some kind of weird Zen position, that I had to be for X number of minutes. My mind wouldn't shut up. And so I just always gave up on it. And so I've learned to communicate with my higher power almost instantaneously, um, which, believe me, is terrific. Um, the other thing I've learned is, in, in OA we have the eight um, tools, I believe, um, but the truth is, is that I've written out a list of about 100 tools. You know? And what I've found is, for me to be in recovery, it has to be a cocktail approach of a lot of different things, some of which work together, sometimes they stop working and I pull other things together. But it's not just being into action, it's being into action with a variety of healthy things to do. If I'm constantly relying on the same two or three healthy things, it is akin to relying on the same two or three foods that I never change up. So that might be, you know, any number of different things, but that it, it is a cocktail approach. Um, two other things I want to mention and then I'm, I'm done. Um, I heard a speaker talk about, this is a long time ago, but he used to quote this French poet. And he used to say, the poet would say, that I had a great life. I just wish I had known it sooner. <laughs> and that really hit me. Like, you know, if I could only get out of my own way, I could see how incredibly lucky and blessed I am. And so, as much as I can on a daily basis, I try to run that as an affirmation. I've had a great life, and I know it right now. And that's part of my connection to my higher power. Thank you, God, for allowing me to be in my life right now, real time, present tense. It's happening right now. Don't have to wait for X, Y, and Z to be happy. Don't need to be a certain weight to be happy. Don't need to have the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the career or it doesn't matter because there's always going to be something for my head to obsess on which will take me out of today which will take me away from being connected so that's one <clears throat> two um, I, I would say that because I struggled for so long but stayed around I used to think I have nothing to share the only thing I have to share is how I constantly screw up that's the only thing I have to share truth is I sat in these meetings for so many years and turns out that I was quite the little sponge of hearing all kinds of really terrific things. And there used to be, and for those old-timers who remember her, Doris, God lover, um, she used to say this great thing. She used to say, when I came in, there were so few of us that, you know, we would each be each other's sponsor, then we each lose our abstinence, and we each be our sponsor. And she said that I started to realize, because the line was, you have to stick with the winners, but she said, you know, I kept seeing people coming around, coming around. I actually, she changed it to, win with the stickers. And so she would win with the stickers. So I'm very grateful that I stuck around, because as it turns out, for sticking around for all these years, a lot of the things I heard will pop up in my head or something will be happening in life. I don't know what it is. And, oh, yeah, that meeting from 1997, that guy was pitching that. It's coming true right now for me, right here, right now. It's the value of staying around no matter what you're doing. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm incredibly, I'm, I'm blessed that I didn't get the promotion. Um, you know, may my stepfather rest in peace. His death provided me the opportunity for my wife to be crying that one day, which was my spiritual experience. I'm grateful for my sponsor. I'm grateful for the friends that I've known for many years. Um, I have, I have been and continue to be very lucky, and I thank you very much for letting me share. Up now for questions. And, uh, if anybody has a question, please ask. Yes. The question is, what are some of the tools or things I change up in my cocktail of healthy approaches? Um, they they vary, but they tend to take on certain themes. Uh, one, uh, page twenty in the big book talks about our constant thought of others and how we shall meet their needs. That's generally a theme that runs through my day. It can be as small as I go pick up a piece of trash. Generally, it has to do with something I can do to get out of myself. The second I'm aware of being in my head or in myself or obsessing about something, me, 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 me is going on, I've gotten better and better um, at recognizing it, number one, and then number two, forgiving myself for being just a human being, and then number three, thanking God for an opportunity to do something else. And once I get those three little steps what I can do to get out of myself becomes very clear. All of a sudden I remember somebody was struggling in a meeting or a colleague from work needs something or, you know, it becomes really easy to be of service, but it generally follows along those lines. I have to be stuck in something and then I have to have the awareness that I'm stuck in something. So it usually goes along that way. But that's, that's one big theme. Uh, the other ones have to do with things I just don't want to do. And I'll write a list of them. Vacuuming. Um, you know, being nice to somebody I don't want to be nice to, making eye contact with somebody I don't want to make eye contact with. So it's usually a long list of things I don't want to do that I know are spiritually good for me. And the list is always getting longer. So, yes. Uh, the question is, now that my body's a little different and I have to eat more often and less food, how do I control when emotions come up? Um, I will just tell you that... Um, in a way, it's been very freeing because I used to believe that if just a particular food was removed from my diet, um, that an obsession would be lifted. And what I've come to realize is that um, uh, that's not really the case. And the case is, is that there are always opportunities for me to um, misbehave, to, to treat myself poorly, to not be present um, to be obsessed about something. And it doesn't matter if I eat twice as often as everybody else. It's just that I'm aware that, that I'm wired that way. Um, so in a way, that's a blessing because it gives me that many more opportunities to stay present. Um, the other thing I want to mention, you didn't ask, that, but I'll, I'll say it this way too. Um, my first abstinence was entirely about... Right, let me put it this way. My first awareness of 12-step was entirely about what I was not going to do. My entire existence in this program was about not eating sugar. And I had a sponsor years ago who used to say, he was a very devout Catholic, and he used to tell me, you know, Andy, in the, in the Bible, um, the Bible basically has three times more thou shalt than thou shall not. And if you work your program in a similar way, it might not be so difficult. So sometimes what I do is I think of all that thou shalt that I can do for myself. Um, 
What a great question. Um, I would say, first and foremost, um, I have to feel... Oh, I'm sorry, let me repeat the question. The question's two-part. One, what qualities do I look for in a sponsor? And then two, what are some of the daily things I might do with my sponsor? Okay. So I would say the first thing I have to do um, in finding a sponsor is, A, do I feel safe? I must feel safe. Two, and that means do I feel a sense of empathy from them? I don't, have, I don't necessarily want sympathy, but I want a sense of empathy. So if I have the sense of safety, um, that's, it begins there. The other thing is, does that sponsor allow me to be unconditionally me, and including saying all the most politically incorrect things about program and how I'm really feeling in real time? I need to feel like I can speak honestly and not edit myself and not sound like a program person. Um, absolutely super important that I feel safe being able to do that. Because I'm not going to feel safe doing that in, in, a, in a meeting. Um, what I, I don't do this as much with my sponsor now, but our routine for a long, long time went as follows. Uh, I would talk to him every morning at 6 a.m. But before I would talk to him, I had my reading that I would read. Then I would do my meditation from what I read. Then I would write. Then I would call him, then I would read to him what I wrote, and I would go on my day. And um, uh, and we went through the whole big book, and we went we looked at other not program stuff, and we actually went through some of the traditions. Um, so uh, so I had a, a structure there. Um, I have another person who I'll call in my food if I start getting a little too wacko, but. Um, but that, that's, that was the foundation. So just having somebody I could talk to every day at a certain time was super important. The question is the difference between being compliant and being of service. Um, I would word it like this. I was compliant when I was really trying to be surrendered. And for me, compliance is the ultimate sense of being of works without faith. I'm following what I'm being told. I don't believe it. I have a whole back channel of story going on in my head and I'm going to be real pissed off when I don't get the result which I'm not going to get because I have absolutely no sense of grace. And um, if I could have understood that back then, I might have been able to say, you know, I'm being in complete compliance and I have no sense of grace. I have no sense of contact to a higher power. I, have no, I don't feel like I'm ever going to get what you guys get. And I just want to be honest about that. And if I had been able to do that, I would have been much closer to being surrendered. But I didn't have that awareness. So I did the actions and just not understanding why am I not getting the, the results. Even if I could get the results by losing weight or starving myself down or exercising myself down, I didn't have the... the the grace that I saw other people have. Yeah, okay. Okay, so the question is um, the difference between being compliant, kind of program-related, and just being of service in the world. And I would say that the 12 steps, 12 traditions, translate beautifully out to the world. Everybody needs a little bit more kindness and understanding. Everybody wants to be heard. Everybody um, wants to be listened to. um, And everybody, generally speaking, responds with a little bit of... um, uh, kindness and service and so I, I am aware of the 12 steps working in my life when I freely give even, no matter how small it is um, to some for instance I have a co-worker who really just needs to chat about 
some complaint about something. I, I personally think that it's not good for her to do, but she just gets so much... If, and if I give her 90 seconds or three minutes or whatever, I just know that's going to make her feel better. And so I'll just, hey, so-and-so, what's going on? And she'll go into her, her little thing. And all I'm doing is just letting, I'm just being of service to her. Um, so it's really an opportunity to just, and this is sort of a prayer and affirmation, but it's like, God, help me just be an asset to the planet. How can I be an asset to the planet? What little things can I do? And just by stating the question that way, generally speaking, a lot of things come forward, and then when they do come forward and I'm able to act on them, I feel so much richer than anybody I might have been of service to. Oh, I understand. Okay, so the question is, how do I follow my own voice internally versus being compliant of somebody else who's giving me direction or something like that. Well, being a service versus being compliant and not being true yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have a good answer other than to say, um, I, today I would answer it this way. Uh, back when I was doing it, I, I was lost. But how I would answer it this way is being able to step back, take a deep breath, ask myself these questions, and see what thought comes forward and then maybe share it with another person who's not in it, and just sit on it and pray on it. I mean, this is, you know, God is all-powerful, and this is the type of thing to call God in on. Yes, uh, the question is, how, how has my relationship with my higher power evolved? Um, the number one thing I did is I started to speak to God in the most guttural, low-self, angry, four-year-old way I possibly could. <laughs> And God's God, and that was perfectly fine with God, and I began to sense the freedom. So it began with me just being unconditionally angry at him, and um, and confused, and whatever the deepest emotion. It's basically the sense of, what am I not getting from spirituality? I blamed on him, and I let him have it. And then all the things started to change. And how it's evolved, basically, is this awareness that um, God can only do so much. God loves me no matter what I do. But if I sit passively eating nachos, you know, I'm not going to get a lot of benefit from it. And so what I've learned in this relationship is to involve other people. And that where I had struggled is that the relationship I had with other people, they were always my higher power. So how is it that I involve other people but they are not my higher power? Like why is it do I need people to access you? It's a very confusing thing. I don't. I don't know why that is. I'm still seeking. So. Yes. Oh, how did you keep coming to meetings during relapse? Like, what motivated you to keep coming back? I had nowhere else to go, and I always said to myself, "I may die this size. I'm going to die in these rooms um, because I know these people love me much, much more than the people outside these rooms do, and I really trusted that." And even though I stopped sharing, nobody ever kicked me out. People are always happy to see me, for the most part. Um, and so, the, you know, I use the term affirmation a lot. For me, the affirmation is, this is my family. They love me unconditionally. I believe that that's true. Just because I don't love myself in that same way, I still trust that. Um, you know, and it goes back to the third tradition. The third tradition is what absolutely kept me here when I was an exercise bulimic 21-year-old. So that's what kept me here.
question is, how do I deal with the obsession of food? Um, yeah, it comes up all the time. And uh, thank you, God. That's how that's how it's going to be. So I can be pissed off at it, or I can just go, that's how it is. For years, I thought I was defective, because what the hell's wrong with me? I've been around so long, I've been so friggin' compliant. Why is it still affecting me? And then I just said, oh, you know what? Come on in. And to the extent I've invited the obsession in, because I have a real higher power now, guess what? Not as bad. So a lot of, you know, there's an old saying, the best way out is through. And so this is one of those examples. It's like, come in. I have a higher power. I'm fighting this. I'm not going to fight it anymore. That doesn't mean I run off and injure myself, but it means that I don't get pissed every time the obsession comes. And, And once I accept it, then the tools are so much easier to deal with. Like, oh, I'm a human being. That's what human beings do who have my disease. So... Um, you talked about um, being an exercise bulimic. Have you found the program has helped you to incorporate exercise into your life in a in a more, um, I guess, into a more loving way? Uh, yeah, the question is, have I been able to use the program to incorporate exercise in a more loving way? The answer is yes. In the way, now I have to say, I sort of work my own program, and there are people who identify as exercise bulimics, and I have most of their phone numbers, so we have our own little thing, but. Uh, fortunately, the act of actual physical pain is quite a motivator, and it was one of the precursors to me realizing, oh, if I did something similar with this weight loss thing, I would probably respond immediately because I'm such a chicken when it comes to pain. And so with the exercise, um, I worked out a program similar to what people might do with a dietitian. I went to a cardiologist. I said, I'm X number of years old, I'm X of pounds overweight, you tell me what I should be doing. And they gave me a program, and I stick to it. And my program basically is, I don't get more than five hours of cardio a week, and that's it. And it's got to be gentle cardio, I can't lift weights anymore, I can't run, I can't do any of the stuff I used to do. But it was set by a cardiologist, it was not set by me. So, Well, let me just say, and this will have to wrap up now, um, my abstinence... And I had I struggled with what it would be. Um, my absence is I follow the contours of the surgery I had. The specific foods that I have, I basically can eat, including sugar, including all the stuff I used to do, I pretty much can have what I want. What I do, though, is I am aware of how I feel when I'm eating in an alcoholic fashion, even if I'm eating a salad. And so the advantage I have, because I have to eat all the time, it means it forces me to be present all the time. And it actually makes it easier, not harder, because I'm taking my temperature so much more often than I ever used to. And if you could have told me that that would have been the effect, because I really thought, oh my God, I'm going to just torture myself twice as often now. And in fact, it's been more freeing than I ever could have imagined. So thank you for letting me share.